Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. Breakfast edition. Is it the breakfast edition around 8 o'clock in the morning, pre-breakfast, breakfast? Depends if you're a Sunday brunch kind of person. I don't mind a Sunday brunch. How about you? Yo, I'm sleeping in too much for it to be a breakfast. So <laughs> brunch is about as, as yeah, um, So as charitable. people are up and about going on their walks and runs and doing the housework and getting out, you're laying in bed right now. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, as I, I mentioned recently, it's it's a... Um, uh, What's the word for it? It, it it's it's wow. There's a, there's a word that is escaping me, but it's very important on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I like it. I for like me it. to lie in bed. Nice, nice, nice. He, of course, is Andrew Page, the founder and managing director of Strawman. You can go to strawman.com and find out more. I am the chief investment officer of the Motley Fool here in Australia. You can go to fool.com.au and find out more from us. As I have said before, the two very, 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 very best investment-related businesses in the country, bar none. It is. Fool and Strawman first, Daylight second, third, fourth, and fifth. I, I'm not even slightly biased. That is my objective opinion, not because I'm getting paid or because Andrew is kind enough to join us on the podcast. That's got nothing to do with it. <laughs> they are just two wonderful, wonderful businesses where you will, I think, learn to be a better investor or at least, uh, yeah, you'll enjoy the process as well. Mate, um, let's get straight into the questions. Another heap of great questions again. I gave the details on Friday at the end of the podcast if you need them uh, to get on our socials or to send us a question, go back to that. In the meantime, Patrick asks a question, mate. This is a good one. He says, hi, Scott and Andrew. Andrew has said, oh dear, that share prices over the long term typically track business performance. Could he please elaborate? As I intuitively agree, but I keep seeing companies that have high share prices that are unprofitable. For example, he says Tesla. What does a strong business performance over the long time, over the long term, look like, which roughly correlates with share price? Mm. Love the podcast and keep up the good work. And that's from Patrick, mate. This is really important. We we often, yeah, almost as a, almost as a, because you and I take it as as effectively gospel. We kind of just say, well, I'll have a long-term business tracks price, and so that's mm. that's what that's what happens, and mm-hmm. let's move on. Mm-hmm. And Patrick's like, well, hang on, <laughs> this business is. I'll, I'll throw in one I own. Amazon is another mm-hmm. like business where you know the, the the amount of profit it achieved, even even cumulatively over its listed life, uh, pales into insignificance compared to the market value of this business. And Patrick's like, well, I get that, you know, if you're, if you're you know, a, a toll road, not a toll road, a bad example, if you're a supermarket, right, mm. you do a certain amount of profit, that grows slowly over time, the share price probably grows slowly over time, I can see the correlation, that makes sense. Is it necessarily true, though, when it comes to businesses like Tesla? Is Tesla the exception that proves the rule? Is the rule wrong? Are there, are there circumstances or, or criteria that might change whether or not mm. business and price do follow? <laughs> So the, the key the key part of that statement is over the long term, which is a very um, non-specific kind of number <laughs> yeah. or, or term. term. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what do you mean? Is that five yeah. years, ten years, twenty years? <laughs> um, uh, but it, I think when we say business performance, I think at the end of the day, when all is said and done, we're ultimately talking about free cash flows. The kind of not just the cash flows that are coming into a business, but those that are available for distribution to the owners of the business. Yep. Whether or not they are distributed, management might decide to reinvest <laughs> those to, to make more money, but are available if the board so decides to 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 share it with the owners of the business. That's really going to be the anchor on which everything else swings around. Mm-hmm. And so when I say that there's no exception ever in the history of the world <laughs> where free cash flows has just gone through to the roof and the share price hasn't eventually followed, I mean, it's just, it's just true. And, and vice versa. There's no company where it's seen its, 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 its cash flows flounder or go to zero mm-hmm. and it's, it's defied that. Now, it will uh, in the short term. And can do so for for a, what feels like forever, mm-hmm. but there is a there is a financial gravity there that is as almost as real as, as actual gravity. <laughs> like you can't you can't deny it, right? Mm-hmm. It just is. Um, so I, I I I just don't know what that is. I I, I think like um, heuristically, I would say you need to sort of see three five years plus mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. For that to sort of play out, you, you, yeah. it's 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 hard. Not impossible. I'm sure you'll find exceptions, but it's mm. it's very difficult to find too many examples of where cash flows have gone in one direction and the share price mm. has gone in the mm. o- in the other in over that kind of time frame. Um, although entirely possible. Uh, and the old saying is, is that the market can remain irrational far longer than you can re- <laughs> remain solvent. Is is the is the odd uh, the old uh, phrase. 
Um, so that's, I know that's an unsatisfying answer, but it's, it's why I think you kind of have to be a, a, mm-hmm. a patient long-term investor without any set near-term date on when you need the money back because it, you just can't allow that, that phenomenon to play out that way. You kind of are very much dependent on the mood of the market when, when, when that isn't the case. So Tesla is interesting. Um, uh, the cash flows, at least the free cash flows, aren't really there as yet. But if you go back to 2012, I did a quick Google search when you were talking. Tesla was delivering 2,663 um, uh, vehicles in the 2012 period. <laughs> It's amazing, that right? Last year they did nine hundred thirty-six thousand two hundred twenty-two. So, what the mu- now? I don't know whether I don't own shares in Tesla. Um, yeah. I don't. I'm not close enough to it to know. But what the market is undeniably saying is that okay, the free cash flows aren't there yet, but something on a fundamental basis is going very, very, very right for them. In the sense, they're just selling a hell of a lot more than than what they were before. And if they continue to do that, and they manage to scale effectively and look after their costs. And the margin, gross margins are attractive. The unit economics are attractive. That will inevitably translate into very attractive cash flows, and that's what the bet is. Mm. Now, if it does, so what I'm saying is, if it doesn't, maybe maybe vehicle production continues to go to the moon, mm. but if the unit economics are bad, such that it costs you, I don't know, I'll make it up, costs you ten thousand dollars <laughs> to make a, a Model X, and you're selling it for eight thousand, it doesn't matter how many. In fact, the more you sell, the more money you're going to lose. So, you know, you 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 you. You can't focus too much on one metric, but so long as all of those sort of key things move in the right direction, it's not an unreasonable assumption to say that you know there will be there will be cash and there will probably be a lot of cash. How well that translates to the current price is is the art and the black art of, of valuation, <laughs> <laughs> and and therein lies therein lies a good part of the challenge. But but I don't know if it's. I think of all the examples you want to give, Tesla is probably not the most ridiculous one. Mm. Um, in fact, there's 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 a really good one. I don't know if I'll get sued for saying this, but there's a really good one on the ASX. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Have I got you nervous now? Yeah, um, pretty yeah. much. That's <laughs> called- Page, P-A-G-E, courtesy of strawman.com. <laughs> Go on. There's, a, there's a few companies out there that kind of fit, fit this kind of um, – this bill one is i think audio pixels right? right and they've got like a a technology that sort of does speakers but with mm. with uh it, um uh, it's a different technology all very exciting it's just they've just never developed a prototype no, there's nothing there's, okay. there's no cash flows there there's there's no yeah. there's no product there yeah. there's not even a yep. demo product there and every yep. time they've promised the market to look at it <laughs> now again just to be careful here mm. they, mm. they they may announce something tomorrow and it just completely disrupts <laughs> the entire right. industry <laughs> And is thing is things worth two two trillion dollars in twenty years time? So that, that's absolutely possible. Yeah. But but a lot of people, a lot of investors, have been looking at that for a long time. Going, this is ridiculous. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. And yet, yeah. over the last ten years, it's gone from five bucks. It's tripled in share price. Yeah. Share price is fifteen dollars. The market capitalization is four hundred million dollars. Um, and it, it's it's a good eternal mate. It's a good example of a business that's never not. Um, Free cash flows, damn! It's never even developed revenue, yeah. sales, yeah. or anything, yeah. and yet yeah. it's yeah. it's still up there. But <laughs> my right. contention is that can only last so long. One of two things is guaranteed: either the company develops and commercialises a product and sells squillions of them, and that pr- mm-hmm. price looks absolutely reasonable, if not attractive, mm-hmm. or they just never really get it together and the share price collapses. Yeah. Guaranteed, one of those two things has, has to happen, and that's that's oh. your bet as an investor. So I'm going to step you back from the guaranteed thing, mate. Yeah, maybe I a think should. What I, no guarantees no, no, no. in investing. Yeah, yeah, but I know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But only because I think the the, the my answer is is similar to yours, but I'll tell a slightly different nuance. The difference between the two, if you were to draw the line between point X, the starting point zero, where we start, right, whatever your starting point is, and infinity out to the right hand side. Now these are obviously extreme, but work with me here. The the the, the the price today and the price at infinity is made up of two parts. It's made up of the underlying cash flows of the business, as you said, Andrew, added to or subtracted from by sentiment. Mm. Yes. And sentiment is not just mood. It's not just irrationality. It's all of those things that investors are prepared to factor in and choose to believe mm. about the future mm-hmm. because everything is future looking. 
So if I was to, and here's, here's, why, here's why it's important. Let's take, I'm going to take Woolies, mate, because it's a really basic, reasonably consistent, constant business. So let's take away from Teslas and stuff, which are, you know, people have emotional views on and just, just different technological views. Woolworths shares are today 40 bucks. I think you and I would say that's probably a little bit expensive, but let's just pretend mm -hmm. that's fair value. Because mm -hmm. again, it's not, but let's pretend it is. Let's pretend Woolworths is worth 40 bucks now. Now, if the price yesterday was $10 or $100, and the fair value today is 40, Yesterday, there was something going on in, in the investors' minds as a group which mm. said, we think this business sucks or we think this business is going to be spectacularly great mm. and we're prepared to put into that share price a view of how the future is likely to change. I've said before, a quick slight half tangent. I've said before in this podcast, there's nothing special about tech stocks. There's no reason technology companies should be worth or should be actually have better performance than any other sector mm -hmm. because nothing... Because... No, it doesn't matter what your product to. or what you're doing is. Right. It's just how much money you make is a consequence of your, your economic activities. Right. And if tech companies do better on the market than other companies, you know why? It's because the market undervalued them to start with yep. or is overvaluing them now. Mm. And that's what yep. I mean about the sentiment thing. So yep. over the long term, Patrick, to, to Andrew's point, it can only ever be worth the sum of its cash flows. Mm. And the longer it goes, the smaller the odds, not, not zero, uh, as I was sort of just modifying the absolute thing, the smaller the odds that sentiment is, la is, is layered into the business. Mm. There was a time when Woolies shares were less than $20 a share because everyone thought Woolies was over. Mm. There was a time before that when they were almost $40 a share. This is back seven, eight, nine, maybe even longer, 10 years ago, when Woolies was 40 bucks back then because everyone thought the future was great because these margins it had were unsustainably high. Mm. Now, it turns out, <clears throat> even if you assume today's price is fair, and it may not be because that's the other thing we don't know at the time, you only know in hindsight, you know, there were times in the past when those shares were overvalued and undervalued, not because the business's future cash flows were any different, because we know now know what they are. Mm. It was the market's view of those future cash flows. But over time, by def if if here's here's why here's why price follows value, because in 2022 we know how much profit Woolies is making, and we can reasonably assign a value to that level of profit today, based on the risk-free rate, the available alternative investments, the rate we want, we've talked about that before, I think we did it last week, mm. um, to say, okay, well, you know, well, this is objectively worth 14 times earnings and, and uh, the earnings are this, and so therefore, you know, we can do those maths. The extent to which is different from that is that sentiment piece I talked about, but over the long term, as the value is more obviously present, and frankly, as growth rates slow, these businesses will be valued more closely on those cash flows. And so Tesla right now, and this is the, the, the challenge for tech investors right now is company growth is faster than it's ever been. Mm. You can't scale a single steel mill into a globally dominant steel maker in any less than about 45 years. Yep. You know, 60 years ago, you couldn't do it. Because you you, you know, if you want to double your production, you've got to build a whole new steel mill. Mm. And then you want to double it again, you've got to build two whole new steel mills. Mm -hmm. and then you want to go to a different country, well, you've got to build a steel mill in that country. Mm. These days, you design a bit of code, you push it out, the market loves it, TikTok, right? We mm. laugh about TikTok, and it is stupid. Mm. But it's a global phenomenon, which is literally turning overnight. So the, the ability to go from zero to one, to use the phrase you used on Friday, Andrew, mm. um, is just phenomenally you know, faster. And that's why tech is harder to value, because that growth trajectory can be incredibly steep, or it can go to zero really fast. Gro growth trajectory on what are essentially 100% gross margins as well. Exactly. So 100 people on board onto to, you know, zero tomorrow, yeah. Yeah. their costs don't go up <laughs> at it all. It stupidly fast, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So look, those are those are the reasons. So, so all of that, all of that being true and said, and I think that is true. I think has been said. Um, you know that that's why. But over the long term, the reason price follows value is because sentiment washes out. Mm. Now, I will say by the way, not always, not in every case, and not exactly to zero. So there are some. I, I would argue CSL has had a lot of sentiment in its price for fifteen years. Mm -hmm. I think I think it's been overvalued for most of that period of time, and I think still is, or at least is way too optimistically valued based on an unknown future for a business that's already stupidly large. Now, I might be wrong about that, by the way. It's just a single example. And if you disagree with me, then it's a bad example. But the idea of sentiment can last... Same as um, Altria, the cigarette company, right? It was Philip Morris. Mm -hmm. it, it was stupidly undervalued for most of its corporate life over the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. Why? Because people say they hated cigarette companies. And so guess what? The returns have been astronomically good. Well, everyone went, nah, terrible idea, terrible investment. Not going mm -hmm. to buy it. 
Mm. So I don't want to. I don't want to suggest. And this is where these truisms are true, but not universally applicable and without exception. But overall, and this is this is why these rules of thumb are useful. And back to portfolio construction, all sorts of stuff. Almost always, over long periods of time, price will follow value. And that's probably the more accurate way to say it because there are going to be circumstances where things just happen. By the way, other things like Musk himself has said, if Tesla, if Tesla's, if there was a recession in Tesla's early years, the business would have gone broke. Mm-hmm. Literally gone broke. So what was the va- what is the value of Tesla? Well, we know today what the shares are trading for. That's not necessarily the value. But there was two versions of the future, one in which there was a recession and Tesla shares were worth zero even while they were trading for tens or hundreds of dollars a share. Because if it goes to zero, everything times zero is zero. Um, so it's impossible to know for sure. But over time, in almost all cases, over a long enough period, price tends to follow value because at that future point, if the market rationally values the shares, it'll go from today's price, whatever it is, to that price, which is probably more accurately reflective of the business. That's yes. Done? Yeah, no, that's right. I, uh, yeah, and why I think, well, <laughs> why I certainly have a bias towards mm-hmm. growth companies is, and yep. I stole this from you years ago, I just loved it, which is the idea that growth covers a lot of sins. It covers a lot of valuation sins. It does. So the thing is with PEs or multiples, any multiple you care to choose, is they can normalize or they can compress or they can expand. <laughs> but earnings can, in theory, just grow forever. Well, not mm. forever, but for all intents and purposes, yeah, right? Yeah. So if I've got a business that's compounding its its earnings at 20% per year, maybe I'm overpaying for that. Maybe the PE is 80, you know, something mm. that's traditionally quite high. Mm. And you could say, yeah, but in, in five years' time, it's going to be 40. So mm. so in other words, for every you know, every dollar of earnings is being valued as, as, as half as much. Mm. But the growth can be so substantial that still you do the maths and it's like I'm still miles ahead, right? Mm. Um, and that's – so I think, I think you're right. You don't – you, you want to be – careful with some of these companies assuming that the sentiment is always going to remain favorable maybe there's a future yeah. Yeah. 20 30 plus where the market just thinks well csl is a great company no question there mm. still going great guns mm. but for whatever reason the collective zeitgeist of the market is is that no a pe of 25 is much more sensible for a business mm. like this mm. and that's fine um as long as the intervening growth is strong enough but yeah, that's right so you've got to here's the thing right you've still you've got to guess or forecast if you want to be more sophisticated about it, but you've got to forecast both of those things. One of them is a, uh, a mean reverting in character, and the other is is not tethered to any sort of normalized value. One, one can continually increase, at least for many, 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 many years. So focus on both. Don't overpay. Don't put too much emphasis on sentiment. Absolutely. Perhaps even assume that sentiment will be lower in the future as a little, little bit of a margin of safety. But the real area of focus for me is 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 the growth. If I if I get a company, if I over, I would rather overpay for a company mm-hmm. that is growing its earnings very very strongly, and I've got the capacity to sort of sit and wait for five ten years. Yeah. Um, I'll probably be okay, even though I might regret that I didn't, you know, was a little bit fussier on it, rather than rather than um, paying for something that might. You know, like a Woolies, right? Perfectly decent company, excellent company. But, you know, 5% compound earnings growth long-term is about as good as it will ever get, you know, if that, probably 3.5%, 4% maybe. Um, uh, and buying that at a high multiple. Like it, it just, the, the growth is never going to be sufficient enough to offset any compression in, 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 in multiples. So you just, you just, it's just worth having a look at the lay of the land and saying, what are the, what are the two most important variables here? How are they likely to move? And what, what is that, what does that spread of possibilities look like? And as I always say, go, go, go where the asymmetry is. You're never going to know, but when that, when the market is at the lower end of a reasonably forecast spread of, of potential futures, the odds are just so, so much more dramatically in your favor as, as to that. That's just a more attractive bet. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really nice way to sum it up, mate. Hey, I've got a question from G-Star, G-S-T-E-R, G-Star. Maybe it's Graham or George or Greg, I don't know, G-Star. Um, Hi, Scram, he says, thanks again for all the great content, consistency of message and persistence in keeping the podcast coming week in, week out and without fail. Thank you, mate. We do our, we do our best. <clears throat> Over the years, I've asked a couple of questions, but I think this one will be short and sweet. I'm interested to check if I'm accounting for a demerger correctly in my portfolio. Now, this is a uh, UK company, GlaxoSmithKline. 
recently demerged into two businesses, one called GSK and one called Halion, H-A-L-E-O-N. As such, I now own two companies and was awarded one share of Halion for every GSK share. In my portfolio record, there is no purchase cost for the new entity. Is the math as simple as taking half the amount I invested in Glaxo, dividing that by the number of shares I've been awarded to create a nominal cost price per share, then reducing the cost of the GSK, GSK portion by half? It seems right to me, but I thought I'd check with the Sages of Sydney. I like that. That's our new name. Thanks. If we change the name of the podcast, it will be Sages of Sydney, G. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks and keep up the good work. And that's from G-Star. Huh. So I, I did a little bit of work on this one. I, I, our listeners know our research is reasonably scant. Um, the We like the, to fire from the hip. Correct, correct. And, and as always with any of these things, please ask your accountant. Don't take our word for it. And frankly, if you go to the ATO and said, but Scott and Andrew said it was okay, the ATO will look at you like you idiots and you will deserve it. So make sure you, are, make sure you ask the question of those who know these things. Um, the, the, I actually read the, the demerger document, actually. And uh, the, GSK, in, as part of the demerger, the advice they give or the, the information they give is that it's up to the individual and to their accountant to determine the fair value for each part of that business. And I think that's probably the right way to think about it. And the reason I say that is because, let's say uh, Andrew and I spun off our Sunday mailbag episodes. Now, you could make the argument that, okay, well, same amount of time each, 50-50, that, that would seem reasonable. If I told you though, and this is not true by the way, if I told you that 90% of the advertising revenue was for the Friday episode, only 10% for the Sunday episode, mm. If you're valuing the separate podcasts, you're not going to say, well, there's two podcasts. They're both an hour-ish each. Uh, therefore, they're worth half each. A decent person, decent accountant would say, well, no, I think the Friday episode's worth more. Let, let's be a little more concrete here. Let's say Woolworths spun off its Victorian supermarkets and you got one share of Woolworths and one share of Woolworths Victoria. It would be obvious to most people, I hope, that the Victorian business, as good as it is, was simply much, much smaller than the rest of Australia, which would be left in Woolworths. So if that's one of each, one numerical share of each, not each share has the same implied value. And so in that case, a fair value based on profit or revenue um, would be a reasonable approach to take. And I think, and I'm not a tax accountant, but reasonably defensible with the ATO. By the way, we have accountants who listen, they will absolutely tell us, and you'll find out next week if I'm right. Um, but a defensible fair value calculated on some you know, reasonable fundamental basis would be necessary. There is a slight addition to that or exception to that. And that is simply where a business is demerged or spun off and is listed, you get a sense of the market's valuation of that, or sometimes the companies themselves. So the BHP Woodside spinoff, for example, um, the, you know, the, the, the value of those businesses was calculated independently and then put back together. Um, so you have different ways of using that fair value. So yeah, one for one is not enough because it, it just because there's two individual shares and they're one each doesn't mean each is necessarily worth half. Uh, Tabcorp is another example. When they spun off the Lottery Corporation, the Lottery Corporation is worth much more than the remaining Tabcorp. They actually spun off the bulk mm. of the business, um, it, which seems weird, right? If you, if you start with a business that's worth 100, you spin off you know, 55, 70% of it, uh, you're kind of left with less than half of it. It feels weird. Uh, but in that circumstance, again, the Lottery Corporation was worth more than the remaining Tab Corp. So one-to-one wouldn't be the right ratio. Mm. Have I done that justice, Mike? Yep. No, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's the way to think about it. Yeah. It's, it, I wish it was easier. Um, yeah, same. Yeah. But, but there's always some discretion involved. <laughs> I mean, I wish companies could, could, I think, do a better job of – I mean, they don't know what you paid for the shares originally, of course. But they, there is – I do find it uh, – yeah, behind the curtains here. A lot of the stuff we do when a company delists, there's a lot of manual process that has to happen yeah. on straw man for me to do it. Yeah. So someone, you know, it's just because the data provider is useless and doesn't tell us. So you know, someone will usually say, "Hey, bloody blah, blah. <laughs> <That> seems wrong. <laughs> the, 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 yeah. the share split hasn't hasn't happened. Can you account for it or the demerger?" And so I go on there and look at. And you, you have the number of announcements you need to read. And they provide everything legally that they need to under the sun, but you just want like a one paragraph that explains in plain English exactly what's happened here in terms of the capital restructure. It is, I'm just, it strikes me as really uh, obvious that, that there is, there is uh, the, 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 more often than not, 
Mm. It's very, it's very confusing, which doesn't need mm. to be, mm. which it doesn't need to be, especially when you look at the investment bank of fees that people have paid here to make this transaction go through. It's like, hey, can someone just put together a paragraph on what this means for just our, our ordinary shareholders? <laughs> they, they like to make it a bit. It's a slightly different thing, but they do, they do, they could do a much better job, I think, of communicating to their shareholders and exactly what it means. Accountants struggle with it as yep. well, right? Accountants, accountants do as well because they they have to go through and do all the work to figure it out exactly how it's all broken down. So it's just anyway, it's just a small frustration of mine. But and I can see, is it Patrick? Um, the, the 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 difficulty of, of sort of trying to calculate all of this it, it is tricky. But yeah, Gster it was, but um, sorry, sorry. And, and it is it is tough. It is tough, mate. So here's one from Stephen. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a bit of a cough. Uh, Stevenson, hi Scott and Andrew, thanks so much for your wonderful podcast. You're very welcome. My question to you both: Here's a challenge for us, mate. Why bother with this DCF stuff at all? After all, says Stephen. Firstly, a the future is unknowable, so your guess is only that. And b it's not that hard to find research by broken analysts on many of our listed companies. Brackets, you can go to websites, uh, for example. Surely it's better to just read what they come up with as regards the metrics of the businesses you're interested in. Note also there's always a range of views among the experts as they each have different assumptions in their projections. Love the show and look forward to your responses. Regards, Stephen. Why are we bothering, mate? You can't know the future anyway. Another people have already done the work. Mm. Aren't we just whistling Dixie? It, it kind of... Um I, I get I get the standpoint, but it, it ventures very close to this philosophy of the efficient market. This this idea that everything that can be known is known and is being yep. judged perfectly objectively. And yep. I'm of the view that that's not true. I'm of I'm of the view that there's a lot of um, information that isn't priced in or accounted for, or at least not accounted for properly. Mm-hmm. And even within as 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 the um, listener mentioned that, that even within these so-called experts and by the way <laughs> the history the, nice. the, the track record out there <laughs> would suggest that you know yep, the, yep. the history isn't great but even if you yep. want to be generous to them I mean like well which one of them are right right yep. like there's, there's a huge sort of spread there so the great thing about the market is is that uh, the market uh, writ large can be wrong, and even the, the best of the best of the best within that market can often be wrong as well. So it's mm. and the future and the, because the the future is unknowable, and it's very very difficult to forecast the future. Um, so so therein lies the opportunity and the challenge and the risk. <laughs> you, well, you a colleague of ours once said it was the. The key to doing well in the market is to have a variant perception. Mm-hmm. You need to have a variant perception by definition because if your perception yeah, yeah, is the same yeah. as everyone else's, you're going to get the average, which is fine, but buy an mm-hmm. ETF and, you know, go sailing or something. It's, yeah. it's just you, you – by simply by – unless you just need the money, you know, anytime you buy or sell, you are, you are saying um, explicitly or implicitly the market is wrong. I'm buying shares because the market is, wrong, is too cheap. And it is. I, I have a different view on either what what the the future of the business holds or how people are, are valuing that future, and and flip it around on the, on the sell side. They're, they're, they're wrong, and I'm happy. To, I prefer the cash instead of the shares because the market is wrong. So it's um, if you don't have a, a degree of confidence to say that the market is wrong, then 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 don't trade, don't don't transact. I should say is probably a better word. <laughs> but you have to have that view. Yeah. You there's no way there's no way around it. And, and and too many people go, well, the market is going up, therefore it will keep going up. And there's all these terrible first level sort of thinking involved in that. But if you pull yourself up and think back, a little, just step back a little bit and think about it, you know, if, if you, you have to be able to articulate a reason as to why the market is wrong. And if you can't, that's fine. That's, that's the case for me and 99% of the things I look at. <laughs> but if you can't, then don't do anything. Yeah. I... I think you're exactly right. Um, so, Stephen, I, if you take a view you can't know and it's not knowable, then you also have to believe the, air quotes, experts also can't know, in which case it validates your second point. If the future is unknowable, then what the experts think is also unknowable, which means by definition it's entirely useless, which is fine. And that's an entirely fine view to take. And in that case, as Ram says, buy an ETF. Mm-hmm. 
If you take the view that the experts have done the work for us so we can use that information, I will share with you one. I just looked it up on, on ComSec. Um, here's, the, here's the consensus view on Woolworths. Or not the consensus view. They've, they've, analyzed, they've asked uh, eight, 15, 16 analysts. Okay, of 16 analysts, six are a strong buy, two are a moderate buy, five are a hold, three are a strong sell. So six strong buy, well, that's, that's the most, so maybe it's a strong buy, except that eight of them say it's either a hold or a strong sell. And that's more than a strong buy, so maybe we should hold or sell it. Now, two or a moderate buy, that feels like it's a bit of a nothing thing. It's only two out of 16. So that, if you start to, you know, if you believe that experts know, then six with a strong buy and three with a strong sell, at least a third of those experts and maybe two thirds are going to be wrong. And that, that, that excludes the, the guys in the middle. Okay? And it doesn't really matter what the answer is for our purpose here. Um, and I've, we've made the point before I think Woolworths is overvalued for what it's worth now here's the other thing uh, on Comsec again I'm probably giving away some confident, oh, some not confidential proprietary stuff so bear with me but Comsec are sharing at the moment Goldman Sachs has a buy rating with a $44 price target it's a $36 stock so it's a buy <laughs> except Morningstar's research says sell with a fair value of $26 so not only is there a range of $18 between the two but there's an $8 range on the upside with Goldman Sachs and a $10 range on the downside with Morningstar so which expert do we listen to? And then we get back to, well, you know, either you can't know the future, don't bother, or you have to then choose which expert to believe. Mm. Now, if you do that, what you're effectively doing is you're relying on their analysis, which frankly, 90% of the time will have included some version of a DCF. <laughs> so we're kind of back to the beginning. And then here's the thing. Which analyst do you believe? Well, you've got to, if you want to know which one to believe, you've got to do the research to work out what, they, what assumptions they've made and then work out which one of those you like, in which case you've done your own DCF by definition. Mm. You might have literally pressed the buttons, but you have said, no, no, that analyst who says that Woolworths growth will be 7.6% a year for the next seven years with a terminal rate of 5%, I'm using a discount rate of three, I think that's right. So you've effectively, you've outsourced the DCF, but you've shown your own inputs because you've worked out based on the analysis which analyst or which expert to believe. Mm. Now, here's the other thing, to Andrew's last point. If all you do is take the average, you're going to get the average, you've probably paid or, or bothered trying to pick stocks based on an average view, and the average view is going to give you an average result. So you've done all this work and effort for absolutely nothing, and we're back to the ETFs again. Mm. So I don't mind the question, Steve. I think it's the right intellectual question to ask. It's a perfect question. It's a really useful one to tease out because it really should... Everyone should ask that question of themselves. Do I think I have the ability to find a way, whether I do it myself or trust an analyst or a group of analysts or something, to get to an answer that does the job I want it to do? Can I, can I get to a market-beating process again i don't like the word system because it implies trading systems and that kind of stuff but i'll call it a system for this purpose do i have a system i can implement that gives me above average results if you do that you have to believe the future is not knowable but at least probabilistically um uh, accessible <laughs> and and i can do that using some assumptions either my own or someone else's but that someone else also has to be right and as i said with the six strong buyers and three strong sales and woolies at least a third of those analysts are going to be wrong if you're on the wrong side of that you don't only get the average result you get worse than average mm. Um, so, you know, here's the, here's the problem with, this is the absolute paradox of investing. I'll write this up more properly and more succinctly at some point in the future. The paradox of investing is this. On average, you can't beat the market. But for there to be an average, a lot of people beat the market. And that is the paradox of investing. When someone says, don't bother trying to beat the market, buy an ETF and get the market return, they are spot on. Everyone should do, literally everyone should do that. If everyone did that, everyone would do that, right? <laughs> and everyone would get, at a population level, the average is all that's possible to achieve. After all that effort and time and hassle and time listening to podcasts and running DCFs, the average is all that's possible for the market. So either someone underperforms and someone overperforms, or everyone gets exactly the average. Now we know the second thing isn't true. So if someone overperforms, it must be possible to do that. And so it must be possible to, at least in theory, work out a way to make that happen. That's why Andrew and I pick stocks. That's why a lot of our listeners pick stocks. That's why the analysts themselves try and pick stocks. But it's just worth teasing that out because you've got to make your peace with that, that very simple paradox. Mm. As a group, we should all index. Individually, those people with the ability to beat the market should try and beat the market. And you've got to get that through. And it, it, will, it will send you mad if you try and set it to its fullest potential. You've just got to work out, do I think I am capable of and do I have evidence? that I'm capable of beating the market, in which case I should pick stocks. The, the, the biggest tragedy is those people who suck at it don't give up earlier. That's the group I feel most sorry for. Not those who pick stocks or those who get the average. But if I am above average, someone else by definition must be let below average. And that person is doing their best to try and beat the market over and over again, and they're losing because I'm winning. 
I don't mean that in a, in a horrible or a, or a triumphal way. I just mean literally, that's just the real, that's what averages are, right? If the average is nine and someone does 10, someone else must be doing eight by definition. That's how it works. So that, that, is, that is the long answer to your question, mate. It's the right question. Uh, but I think to your point, if you don't believe it's possible to beat the market, grab an ETF, go sailing, listen to the podcast for fun. If you think it's possible, then think through how you would do it or why you believe one particular analyst or group of analysts can do it. But again, if you just use the average, you're getting the average result literally by definition. So there's no point following the average analyst. Either follow an analyst who has a track record of beating the market or work it out for yourself a way you think you can beat the market. But following the average will give you the average result. And you're right, you might as well ETF at that point. I think also too, people people get exasperated rightly so because it does feel very hard. You know, <laughs> so while, while you were doing that, I sort of had a look at the forecast earnings per share and it sort of ranges, mm. you know, someone's sort of calling. Yeah. Per share earnings for Woolies at the moment is $1.36 the last full year. Someone's saying it'll be $1.51 mm. in, the, in the next couple few years. Someone's saying it'll be $1.42. If you're making an investment based on that kind of range, mm. I mean- the, the chance for outperformance is pretty slim there, right? Like they're all good guesses. <laughs> It'll probably be somewhere in that ballpark. <laughs> and this is for a company that out of the grand, on the grand scheme of things, actually reasonably easy or easier to forecast right. than some, some brand new hyper growth company with, you know, in technology or something that's diabolically hard. <laughs> so this is, this is, but it's, it's kind of like, I think if that's your game, well, you do, you do you, but for me, it's, it's, it's just a silly game to play because, I'm never going to be that accurate. I want I want the scenario where it's sort of like the market is expecting six percent growth, but I feel it's going to be twenty percent growth. You know, I want I want that big margin of safety in there where it's kind of like nah, I just like I I think the 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 character of the growth is going to be of such an extent that that I don't need to worry about decimal places. Yeah, right, exactly. So I've, I've made an investment. I feel that it's a really exciting business for a whole bunch of reasons. I feel as though it can grow at this rate. Wow, the market's just not assuming that at all. It's kind yeah. of like, well, even if I'm half right, I'm going to do extremely well. Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's all yeah. not extreme. I'm still going to do well, maybe is the way yeah. to sort of, sort of say that. So it's kind of like if, if I'm making an investment in Woolies right now at $36.18, and I think it's going to grow its earnings at 4% per year and it ends up growing at 4.5% or 5%. It's a lot. It's an outperformance. It's not like it's like, wow, that changes everything. And I had the opportunity to massively outperform the market. Yeah. Um, it, again, it comes down to that that asymmetry. And they're hard to find. By the way, it's, it's you, sort of the way I'm talking is like, well, that sounds like a bit of work and it's tricky. He's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> It's really, it really yeah, is, exactly. and there's not many opportunities like that. But you know, there's, there's more than you think in the small cap end of the market. I would, I would argue. But that's exactly what you want to, what you want to look out for. Uh, roughly right, as opposed to specifically wrong, which is another well hackneyed phrase that we love to regurgitate here for very good reason. For very good reason, you know. And yeah. it's this is this is where the professional class goes so wrong, in my view. When you look at all these incredibly intelligent, yeah. well credentialed yeah. people. They're all arguing about what what the you know the the nth decimal place three years out, and it's like, and they're all coming at it in a very hyper sophisticated way. But it's sort of like you miss the you're missing the bigger point here. I'm looking for big structural changes that play out over five, ten years plus that I only need to be sort of right on to do well. You know, it's it's that that's the game that I want to play. Um, mm. And and I, I feel as though when you're getting to the stage where you're 12 decimal places in, you know, <laughs> you just, right. just give it up. By the way, you can do – I think the, the other way to do it is you can flip all of this on its head and start, instead of working out what you think these these forecasts will be, ask yourself what does the market imply. So there's this I thing – I love this version. Yeah, I love it too. It's called the reverse DCF. Yep. And it's just, just rearranging the formula basically. But it says, mm-hmm. well, given what the share price is, uh, given where earnings are at the moment – and given what I feel is a decent discount rate, what is the implied growth here that, yep. that, that the share price is assuming? I've actually got a very basic spreadsheet I made of it. I plugged it in at the moment. Earnings per share of Woolies at the moment is $1.36. I'm going to say I want a discount rate of 10% because that's just mm-hmm. the return that I want to get. Current price is $36.18. The implied growth there is 6.2%. So the interpretation here is, do I think Woolworths, and by the way, the way that this formula works, this goes out to infinity, can they grow their their per share profit, net profit, at more than 6% per year from here until mm. kingdom come? Mm. 
Now, I very humbly submit to you that no, mm. <laughs> they can't do that. <laughs> now, you might turn around and go, well, actually, I'm, I'm really happy with a 7% rate of return, yeah. in which case all you need there is 3% implied growth on their earnings, and that's, and that's very doable, very, very doable. But, 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 but it, it, see how I've reframed things there? It's more a question of, based on the return that I want, what does the business need to do or what is the market implying that it can do? And, it, and, and then it just, becomes, it just becomes, do I agree or do I not agree? And for me, and call me right or call me wrong or unrealistic <laughs> or unreasonable, but I want a 10% return because that's, the, that's close enough to the market average. And if I'm not getting that, I'm, I'm wasting my time here. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if I want that and the way the maths works out, do I think Woolies can grow? By the way, an incredibly mature business, absolutely dominant in its yep, market. Yep, yep. Can they grow at twice GDP forever? I, I, mm. I think no. I don't think that. I might be wrong, but that's, yep. that's the analysis that I'm making, and that's why it's, it's a pass from me. Yep, I like that. Well, so I love these reserves this year as well. In fact, I, I, took, I didn't take a punt. I told the truth, but took a punt of my very first Motley Fool job interview where our global CIO, Andy Cross, asked me, he said, hey, what do you do for valuation? I thought, oh, I don't, I don't know what the right answer is here, but I'm telling the truth. And I, that's exactly what I said. I said, look, I used to use discount cash flows. I did them a lot. I kind of, because of the, you know, and it, you know, it would end up being exactly the right answer in the event because I said, look, you know, given the, uh, given the inability to really understand what the future's going to be, the un- inherent uncertainty, which is Stephen's point, uh, I, don't, I don't do them. I actually use discounted uh, reverse DCF to work out whether there's an opportunity there. Now, a uh, quick couple of thoughts, mate. I think 6% is probably okay-ish, which probably means worse is probably okay-ish value. Um, because the further you go to infinity, by the way, the more the less that's worth. Because the year twenty, yeah. by the time you discount it back for twenty years, it's not adding much to your numbers, but mm. still, still a worthwhile question. Um, it's also though the other thing I want to make is the when you choose the discount rate. What I love about the reverse DCF in particular is it simply says, you know, when you, when you say Andrew, I want ten percent, that ten percent is effectively you can substitute that particularly in a reverse DCF for the market's return. Because what it's telling you is, mm. am I better to buy this or the market? Because if you don't, if you think if the market returns been, um, you know, ten percent a year, um, uh, for you know, on average, maybe nine percent for a century, right? On average. So if you're going out to your point, mate, to infinity and using the market average return, if like, if we put not put nine percent in for me just for laugh, can you mm-hmm. can you do that quickly now? What's uh, the growth rate need to be? Five point two percent. Right. So here's the thing. The, the, and it's a really easy trade-off, right? Not, you don't have to choose between Woolies in the market. There's a million other investments out there. But what you're really saying is, if Woolies can grow at 5.2% or more, it will beat the market. Mm-hmm. Assuming the market does in the future what it has done in the past. And there's mm-hmm. a bit asterisk there, but work mm-hmm. with me. Mm-hmm. If it does more than 5.2%, it's a market beater. Yep. If it's less than 5.2%, it's not a market beater. Mm-hmm. Easy. Mm-hmm. Now, again, can we know for sure? No. It could do 6.4, it could do 5.1, it could be 7%, it could be 3%. It could go backwards but, and the market could just right, apply yes. ridiculous multiples to it. You know. Exactly, yep. exactly. But, but starting with that, it just gives you a really, really simple way of saying, you know, is this likely to beat the market? Mm. And if, if it does, then it's probably worth buying rather than buying an ETF. Now, there's other options out there, as I said. It's not just Woolies or the market. There's Woolies or Coles or mm. West Farmers or some small tech stock or some mining explorer mm. or mm. CSL or anything else. Mm. But it's just a really, really, really simple way of just asking yourself that, that theoretical question because mm. that gives you an, a, a way to answer the question of is it worth buying Woolies at this point? And, and you know, because if it's not going to beat the market, don't buy it. Buy, buy an ETF mm. at the very least, right? Buy something that's going to beat the market or buy an ETF. Buying a, buying a market losing, market lagging, Company, uh, not not ideal. Or just or just know what it is to what's reasonable to expect. There'll be some people I'm sure listening, who as a retiree who really values their frank dividends, who's like, you know what, I'm just getting nothing in the bank. I just think Woolies is super low risk. You know, if it if if it, you know my deathbed, I look back and I got like a six percent return total out of that. I'm actually pretty happy with that, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's fine. I mean, it's it's each to their own, right? But that's the question you've you've got to ask. If you're going into it thinking, no, I want to get fifteen percent compound over the next five years, that's when you need to sort of sort of check yourself a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's it's exactly. just it's just about having reasonable expectations, a reasonable yeah, basis yeah. for your expectations, yes. and then making a judgment on on that. You know, this is it's what keeps it so interesting. You're going to be wrong a bunch of the times, no matter how good your theory is. It's just the world's too complex a place. But th- what what I find so fascinating about it is that you can make some mm-hmm. pretty broad, general guesses that aren't too outlandish, and you give them enough time to play out, and you make enough of a spread of bets that you're more often right than wrong. You can make mistakes. You can look wrong for great periods of time. But overall, it tends to be really attractive. You know, it's just... 
It's just going in eyes wide open with realistic expectations, with a firm basis for those expectations. And uh, um, yeah, you, because so many people yep. are playing such silly games out there, you can, or, or, it's like Charlie Munger and uh, I think he sort of said with <laughs> him and Warren, it's just like, we don't do anything yep. exceptional. Yep. We just do, we just do, we just do pretty sensible things consistently. That's all we do. And, and I think that's, I think there's a great, great bit of wisdom in all of that. Agreed, mate. Co- the compound value of doing the right things regularly enough is far more than having to hit for the fences. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's yeah. a really important truism in, um, in investing. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, here's one. I love this one mostly because they've put anonymous pleas both at the top and the bottom of the question just so I really don't screw it up. So thank you for doing that. Again, excuse me for my cough. Uh, Hi, Scott and Andrew. What are your thoughts on build to rent? It's a relatively new concept here in Australia, but it is widely adopted in the US and in Europe. With build to rent, there are no bonds and rent increases are capped at 4% and aren't necessarily yearly. You can lock in a rate for up to three years. These are based on our lease agreement and may differ slightly with other build to rents, says our correspondent. We can't see ourselves buying a property again in the near future after selling our principal place of residence six years ago. We prefer the flexibility of renting and see the power of compound interest as we lump some investment into our portfolio after selling our principal place of residence. Also, with BTR, we get the dollar cost average into our portfolio regularly without the worry or concern of other costs associated with home ownership beyond the mortgage payments, with the added bonus of securing a long-term lease. So this is, um, I, I thought this question was originally someone who was going to build themselves to rent, but I think it's actually someone who wants to rent a build-to-rent property. Mm. Uh, currently, dividends cover 50% of our rent, says the correspondent. Once our portfolio gets to the point it covers 100%, we feel it's the same as being mortgage-free. We're currently living in one of the few BTR complexes in the country and loving the concept. We couldn't imagine having to deal with real estate agents, mum and dad investors, and the possibility of having to move every 12 months. Curious to know what your thoughts are. The cons that we know so far are, firstly, there's a higher cost of rent in exchange for facilities, e.g. white goods, cooking, gas included in your rent, on-site gym, on-site building management, mini cinema, entertainment area, sounds good, mm, wow. pet-friendly apartments. And two, we're not aware of any other townhouses or houses under the BTR model. And three, overdevelopment. Usually the complexes have 300 plus units. Keen to hear unbiased perspectives, especially Andrew, as I know he has some strong views on home ownership. I'm not sure you can say unbiased and say that Andrew has strong views on home ownership, but that's okay. Yeah. Loving the pod. It makes me go to the gym a minimum of twice a week and get my motley full fix while lifting or running. Well, we better, we better keep crapping on to make sure the workout goes for long. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Or finish it early, give them a, give, do, them, do them a favor. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, that's, so it's actually, the question is actually living in a build-to-rent complex, mm. which I didn't mm. expect the question was going to be about. Do you have any thoughts, Matt? Are you familiar with the concept or the, the, the I, I, idea? I'm familiar with the concept. I just didn't know it was really much of an option in, a, in Australia, mm. but, mm. but, but uh, I guess it is. So I actually, mm. I think I love the thinking. It resonate, everything that mm. was just said there resonated with me. We're, we've talked before about my decision to do the exact same thing, to, to mm. purposefully mm. rent. Yeah because yep. of the, the, the better return you could get elsewhere. Um, and the, the only flaw, turns out to be a pretty major flaw, in my, reason, <laughs> in my reasoning is the lack of security that you get. So it's sort of all good and well, but you just get kicked out every, every year and it's just a pain in the backside <laughs> yeah. and you have to deal with yeah. real estate agents and, and landlords and it's just really painful. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so if you've got an option that takes that away, mm. I, you, you get security of tenancy then I actually think it becomes a, a, a really, really, really attractive model. I mean, it's all, it all depends. If you're going to do that and then take all your money and invest in emu farms, you know, then that's probably not sensible. Um, but if you're going to do something, um, mm-hmm. if, if you're going to do something that is eminently sensible and yeah. likely to get you a much more superior return, it makes, it makes a huge mm-hmm. amount of sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I, love, I love the concept. I love, I love the concept, but it's sort of like, like with so many things, which way are you approaching it from? Are you approaching it as a potential user? Are you approaching it from a government policy standpoint? Are you approaching it from an investor who's actually buying into these things? Uh, the, the, everyone will have their own their own perspective on it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if I, you give me the option to to have a long term <laughs> tenancy under that kind, where a lot of my white goods and other mm-hmm. things are included mm-hmm. in that, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that 100%. So let me let me ask you that that's relative now would it change your view on owning if you if you have a 3 year rather than a 12 month uh rollover 
would that be enough to change your mind and stay renting or would you still think you might have said you know what yeah. even that in the fullest of time wouldn't be enough uh yeah it's it's you're moving in the right direction five years i yes, think yeah. uh, you know it, it's sort of okay. if i if i had if i had uh security of tenancy over a meaningful period of time i would gladly rent for the rest of my days mm-hmm. and people think oh but you know what what just, I'm surprised that so many people, when I sort of mention this, they go, oh, yeah, but you're always paying rent. And then here comes a person who's like, you know, 90%, they're paying this massive yes, yes, yes. massive mortgage bill each month, mm-hmm. 90% of which is interest. So our rent money is dead money. Well, so is interest, dude, right? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not going, it's not going to you. It's not a principal repayment. Yeah. So, and what's, and, and, and the, the listener just said that 50% of their rent's covered through dividends. So, if I could build up, let's, you know, play around with some numbers. If I can build up mm. over my working life by just doing very sensible things, a portfolio of two or $3 million that I'm getting three or four or 5% yeah, exactly. on. Yeah. I am effectively yep. rent-free, right? As long as I'm, no, I'm not being kicked out because there's a, a mark on the wall yeah. or something yeah. stupid, yeah. you know, then, then, then I, I have I have incredible security, incredible security, and and yeah, <laughs> I think yeah, it makes each to their own, each to their own. I, I agree. I, I think it, it's behavioural as much as anything because mm. the math has always been pretty clear. I don't think there are many times in history where you couldn't have developed a much better. We talked about the compound value of ten grand in, in, a, in a index fund thirty years ago. You know, mm. the, the, and then what that would pay for. You know, for what it's worth, ten grand thirty years ago in a Vanguard, or he don't know Vanguard. It's just in, a, in, a, in the ASX now with one hundred and thirty thousand um, dollars. The, the reality is a five percent return on that's what five eight grand a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, the, every single year you put in ten grand, now you're getting eight grand a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that pays a lot of bills, right? Multiply that out by whatever you would have paid for a house, and then and then roll that forward. Now. You've got to pay rent orange on the way through, so you've got to make sure you deduct one or the other from from your calculations. But generally speaking, as long as your returns from your investments are worth more than the returns from the property, then you should be, in theory, meaningfully ahead. Mm-hmm. As long as, you know, the, the, the behavioural bit is, once you own the house, you don't pay another dollar. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have built a portfolio large enough and you can isolate that amount of your portfolio to always pay the rent, mm-hmm. then you're not actually kind of, you don't need to earn another dollar. You just need to mentally be able to say that part of my portfolio pays the rent every single week for the rest of my life. Not a bad thing or a good thing. There's no, there's no value judgment. It's just, it's just a behavioral change of does that, you know, can you do it? Does it, does it stand alone? Do you make sure you do it? My biggest issue, mate, with the investing versus paying off the mortgage thing is the behavioral challenge of most, I'll say most people, and a vast majority of people, probably not most people listening to this podcast, quite frankly, because they're a different sort of person. They're listening to the podcast and embracing investing. But most people, the forced saving, it's a bit like superannuation. Mm. The forced saving of paying off a mortgage is money they wouldn't have otherwise put in investing because there's always something else to spend the money on. Yep. And that's where the maths always, always, always breaks down in any direction. Not This mm-hmm. is not about mm-hmm. pro shares or pro property. Um, it's just literally about people think, well, if I put the, the difference into an investment, I would do really well. Mathematically, it's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. You just have to do it. It's like people say, if I borrow money to, to, to buy shares and then I did this, yeah, if it works out that way. But if you don't follow through, so it's, it's, you know, th- there's the human element. And most people, honestly, I think homeownership is great for most people because they eventually pay their house off one way or the other and they eventually have an asset they can live in and it hasn't required them to exercise additional discipline. There's something very disciplining about the bank manager saying, you must pay me every month. Mm-hmm. That once you're done, it's like, well, I could buy that T-shirt, coffee, laptop, lounge, mm-hmm. holiday. You know, it's so easy to give you some excuse, like having an offset account. They're mm-hmm. great, but if you keep dipping into it every time you want to do something, mm-hmm. they can actually be counterproductive, and that's something just worth worth thinking about as well. Yep. Now, each each of their own. I just it yep. just it, it, there is the, the question. The, the maths is the maths is the maths. Yes, and you're correct. right. It only makes sense if you can follow through on it. Yes. But that's the question here, and it's just like, do you want to sort of go over the next thirty years? Mm-hmm. My net wealth can be twice as high, but I'm renting. Yes. Exactly. Or yes. I'm, I'm half as rich, but I own my house. I mean, what, yes. what's the, log, rationally, yep, yep. the first option is better. And my, and my, my cash flow after paying for my abode, mm. <laughs> whether, it's, whether it's I have a, slow, a, slow, a smaller portfolio, no repayments, mm-hmm. no rent, yep. or a larger portfolio and rent to pay, yep. the only thing that matters is the after housing outcome from that. So if, you've, you know, if, you, can, if you can have no mortgage in a... $40,000 a year income stream mm. or renting, paying 50 grand a year and have 50 grand left after the rent, mm. well, you're obviously better off having paid the rent with a large, it, it is literally a math, as you say. 
Yep, yep, and it 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 it, it will. Um, there's all there's all kinds of ifs ands or or buts. So the other thing I yep. that helped yep. us in our, in the decision was was just the optionality. So let's say you do that for 15 years, you go, oh, I wish I just bought. Well, there's a giant portfolio I can use to buy a property with. It's not like you yeah. said you make a decision in 2006 and then forevermore you are you are committed to that decision. You you can change yeah, your definitely. mind, but there is huge optionality in 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 the liquidity that comes with with I think equity investing. Yep, mate. Um, last one from Simon. I think we've got time. Yeah, wow, well, squeeze one here. Uh, good day, Scott and Andrew. Says make, Simon, make them run I, on the treadmill a bit longer. Exactly. Keep keep running. Keep running. <laughs> Love the pod. I'm an older investor who's been listening since Andrew 1.0. I love that. That's very funny. Uh, for those who don't know, <laughs> beta, Andrew beta my version. original co-host. Exactly. Well, <laughs> original and the best. The, I, I tried to... I, OP is like... Is that other player in um, in Gamerspeak? OP? I, I don't know. My OG, my OG, says, the OG? Well, are you talking about... Yeah, my, my mother this morning said, oh, Dad, you're, you're like the OP. I said, no, mate, no, I'm, I'm the OG. OG. Yeah, he didn't quite get that. So yeah. I, I just try and throw that in. So yeah, <laughs> a- Andrew is both 1.0 and 2.0. Uh, he is the OG and the new and improved. So you get both. I love how you guys, he says, have a young, fresh approach to investing. <laughs> you can butter us up anytime, Simon. Underpinned by the wisdom of experienced investors. Recently, he says, there was a question about buying shares before the dividend which I don't think you covered well enough. Well, that's mm. constructive criticism is always, always welcome. If you buy shares before they go ex-div, you are, quotes, buying a dividend. That mm. is, you are converting some of your capital into taxable income. Mm. Absolutely true. <clears throat> if it is a retiree super fund in pension mode, he says, the tax on the investment income of zero is more than the franking credit of potentially 30%. So you get the franking credit back in addition to the dividend. Mm-hmm. And he says, <laughs> he has emoji hand clapping. But if you are investing in your own name or any taxable entity, you could buy the share come dividend, which means you get the dividend and pay tax up to 47% on the dividend you receive back, plus a corresponding fall on the share price, ex-dividend. I think it's reasonable to summarize that a super fund in pension mode benefits from buying pre-dividend and a taxable entity is probably better immediately post-dividend. Of course, says Simon, from a long-term view, you buy when you think the price is good, and you have fresh information on the performance and outlook of the company going forward. So ignoring taxes may be reasonable. Mm-hmm. There are secondary issues, he says, such as, firstly, share prices often ramp up in the month or so pre-dividend, so you may pay more. But, he says, your money is at risk for six months with no potential income event if you buy X dividend And then says, would you be able to expand on this further? That's from Simon. Simon, you've done a spectacular job mm. of, of actually outlining it all, mate. I, I mean, I'll, I'll add some thoughts, but you've, you've, done a, you've done a really nice job. So I think our point before, and I remember Andrew's point pretty clearly, was simply that while there might be some slight benefits or costs or, or relative attractiveness or otherwise of going a little bit earlier or a little bit later, over the time if you're a long-term investor, it's probably almost immaterial. And I think... My, my, my thoughts, Simon, on Andrew's point, I, I do completely agree with him. Um, I did say at the time, you know, it's still theoretically or, or, or academically, there is a, a, a better or worse answer. Um, in, if, you're, if you're framing it as just, I'm going to buy a share, A, I've decided to buy it, it's good value, I'm going to buy it the day before the dividend and the day after, which one should I do? It's a question that's academically interesting, theoretically has a correct answer or a more correct answer. Um, and so it kind of should be, I, I don't disagree with anything you said, mate, in terms of the way you've set up the, the pre or post, who's better, who's worse, all that kind of stuff. What I would say, which is kind of a, an expansion of Andrew's point or just a repetition of Andrew's point, is just, it's just probably not important enough to bother trying to get right because once you move, my, one of my favorite quotes, as you know, um, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. Mm. Um, as you say, your secondary issues you highlight are right. Uh, the market could move between those days, right? If the market goes up 2%, it could wipe out any of those other gains you think you're going to get. If it falls 2%, it could make, you know, if I, if I knew for sure, if you said to me, I will let you buy the shares for exactly this price or exactly this price less the dividend three days later and you can choose which one you want based on your tax circumstances, I absolutely would choose one or the other. It would be silly for me not to at least consider if it's, if it's a free lunch, if I get to choose and one's better than the other one, objectively, then of course I would choose the better one. Mm. I think what we're broadly saying is, Yep, you might be right, but there are so many other things that can happen around the edges. The market fell 2% two Mondays ago. Uh, it, you know, if you bought on the Friday or the Monday, you probably, again, it was larger than the dividend uh, impact just, just based on the share price. And, and by the way, that, that, in, in, things that are influencing that have got nothing, zero to do with the company itself. 
Like something something happens exactly. something happens in Ukraine on the other side of the world, and the, and you know your investments were three percent less over the Correct. week. Exactly, exactly. You, so, can't, you can't can't predict that. Yeah. yeah. So so look, you, so you're right. I mean, again, I, and and I don't even mind anyone saying I'm going to choose which one is theoretically better and just assume that over time it's going to play out. Right. That's also particularly fine. I just I think you know here's the other thing: the chance that your analysis is so correct. When you do your discounted cash flow or something else, you say, I, I think Woolworths is worth $36.28, but it's not worth $38.02 or $34.05. The reality is you can't be that accurate in the first place, as Andrew said, I think already earlier this episode. And so you kind of like, you know, playing around the edges about being too clever about the little stuff. It's, it's that roughly right, precisely wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, focusing on buying the right company, the right price, all that kind of stuff. As I said, I, I still think, and you're absolutely right, you are unquestionably right, that after you've done everything else, and you have the choice of buying at one of two dates, two or three days apart. It, yes, of course, if you knew that that was the case, there would be a theoretically correct answer and you're right to raise it. Absolutely right to raise it. I just think, and I'm, I'm, I won't speak for you, Andrew, but you've said last time, um, it, it's just, I don't think, I really, really don't think over time it's likely to change anyone's long-term results. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're going to try and trade in and out of shares over days and weeks, and that's part of your theory. You're right about the, the, the franken credit value and all that kind of stuff. That's absolutely true. And, and there are, you know, I, 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 if you have a different investing strategy or trading strategy, I guess that might become more relevant to you. Um, I just reckon over time. Uh, there's also, by the way, uh, if the share price falls, that's effectively a capital loss, right? So yes, you're turning into taxable income, but you're also then, the shares you then own are worth less if you're then going to sell them. So there's also tax deferral. There's a million different things to consider. Mm. If I had, if you gave me a list of 44 things to include in my investing decision, I would make this the 38th um, arbitrarily. Not because it doesn't matter, just because I don't think it's really important enough. And I'm going to be so wrong about so much other stuff that spending any time on this is probably not very useful. But again, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Years, I can't even remember how long ago it was. It would have been the oh, pre-2010, somewhere like I went to some conferencey thing and there's a bunch of funds that were pitching ideas and a very smart well-dressed young man got up <laughs> and said that we've we've got a dividend stri- it's called dividend stripping we've got a dividend yeah. strip it's not a new idea but you know that yeah. they, they've got it and they had all these really great charts yeah. and this is when you buy and this is when you sell and it means that we can recycle the capital throughout the year because there's different dividend periods so there's certain 90-day holding rules to make sure you get the franking credits. But if we do it over here, we can we can effectively get a much higher yield than the average of the market. And we're raising $100 million to start this fund. Who's in? And it was really, really compelling presentation. The maths all checked out. The reasoning was really solid. Mm-hmm. Um, that fund doesn't exist anymore. And it under... And, <laughs> and right? under yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, actually, that's unreal. Yeah, just it just it, it. That's so good. It just didn't do, and not that it was a disaster, <laughs> but it just didn't do that. Well, for all, one, you've got to pay someone to do that. Well, so you know, in this instance, yeah. you're paying someone to do that. They've got fees to pay. There are transaction <laughs> costs, and then you've got someone over there who might have just thought that oh, here's a really attractive company who reliably pays a dividend each and every year manages to lift that dividend payment mm. by 4 or 5% each year mm. and uh, and is fully franked. And this is like the income that I've gotten out of that has just been so significant. Whether I bought it come dividend or ex-dividend in year one, mm. who cares, right? Like just, it just averaged out to be really fantastic. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just it's just sort of like uh, maybe and maybe maybe there's a different world where these the people running these funds actually did a bit better, <laughs> but it's a hell of a lot of effort and work for something that might have been one or two percent better than average. Yeah. You know, it just yeah. to your point. It, Again, uh, it's free money. It's free money if you want to do it. Like you know, go for it. But it's just it's just so unlikely to be. Well, it's not. It's not even free money. There's, there's, there is that the, the greatest. Everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. To quote <laughs> Mike <laughs> yeah. Tyson, it's just like it makes yeah. perfect sense. And just so happens that the period over which you're doing this, an Icelandic volcano erupts, and <laughs> yeah. and the world market plunges six percent. You know, it's like oh, yeah. Yeah. it just you know, it's the, yeah. the classic six sigma event that wiped out long term <laughs> capital management. You know, exactly. it's just sort of like exactly. it's just yeah. It's, it's I, I love having the conversations. I love thinking these things through, but. Yeah, there's, there's, there's other things, to, bigger things to worry about. And on that note, it is time to go and enjoy our Sunday. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Motley for Money, our very special mailbag edition, as we always like to do. Now, 
on a Sunday morning at 8am. Whether you're in the gym, whether you're in the car, whether you're saving this till Monday, whether you're listening to this in 44 weeks' time. Um, or you're in, or you're in bed with a cup of coffee reading the paper. Speaking personally, exactly. <laughs> do, you, do you have a physical paper? No, oh, digi- digitally or... Yeah, and it's probably not even the I news. Missed, <laughs> not even, I, missed the thing, yeah. I missed the physical paper. I bought one the other day to do a crossword at a cafe. Oh, yeah. And there's something leafing through the paper. I'd love to know... You can't do it. I'd love to know the research on the way people consume... I don't want to call it media, but but news in this new world. Like you, you just flip through the paper, right? You just grab it, and you kind of go page two, page three, and you just something mm. catches your eye, and you read a bit of it, and you move mm. on. And I don't, know, I don't know how. I wonder how that changes on online. I don't miss it. Don't you? No, nah. no, nah. kind of do. Well, I, I, especially whenever I do come across a paper, if you're in a waiting room or something, and it's just sort of like, oh my god, it's it's it's, it's there's there's so much great content out there that I, I feel yeah, as though that's true. yeah, that's true. it's just. My, the most, the most, the most rare commodity these days is attention, and uh, yes. you got to have something pretty special to to capture mine, as 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 you do to anyone's. I think. I reckon that makes us. I reckon that makes us less informed as a citizenry, though, Matt. So that, it's the Depends what you're reading. Well, I don't know what you're reading online, but there's some great stuff online, right? But you don't you don't find it because you got to look for it. Like the idea of the newspaper was you turn to page four and you see an article on Sudan and you read it because I didn't know anything about Sudan, but that's interesting. It's yeah. in front of you, right? So you kind of absorb it. If you if your interests are chess and Pokemon and gardening, you're probably not going to read about Sudan. That's I I, I don't I just don't know if it's I don't know if it's a, p- a positive for an informed citizenry. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, you got to you got to you got to. I think with the way that you can find and consume information, there's an art in that actually, and there's practice yes. that comes with that. But yeah, you got to watch it. You got to don't. Mike, there's a lot of people do it. <laughs> See, yeah, you know, yeah. people who just. I know, like if you, unless you unless you choose to, you didn't have to practice in the past. You now got to choose to do it, and that worries me because I think it makes us dumber as a society. Yeah, don't get trapped in a, in a bubble. Yeah, that's they're, yeah, they're, you, you really you really got to be on the lookout for that. Yeah, hundred percent. Let's not talk anymore about that because we're already way over time. We'll save that for our special tangent <laughs> the, podcast. The I'm, guy on the treadmill right now, like, oh, for the love of God, <laughs> my thighs I are burning. I was done. I thought I Please. was done. <laughs> Will you come back next week? You know it. You know it. See you then. Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.